All right, ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to You Be the Judge. This is lesson number five, five out of six. By the way, just so you know, we planned this course to end right before Passover, which means that if this is lesson five and next week is lesson six, you know what that means. Passover's around the corner. That's the, that's the math. That's the You Be the Judge math. All right, so we are continuing our exploration of law and ethics in this, in this session. We are going to be comparing U.S. law and Jewish law with regards to a very intriguing um, category of law or topic, and that is labor law, employment law, labor law, laws governing um, the workplace, essentially. What does U.S. law have to say about that? What does Jewish law have to say about that? How are they different? How are they the same? These are questions that we will be dealing with tonight. You know, um, uh, uh, among these questions, we're going to ask, we're going to look at the difference between whether you work for yourself or you work for someone else. Are you self-employed or are you an employee? How does the law distinguish what, in what ways do laws differ between whether someone is an employee or an independent contractor? And likewise, how does the law differentiate between the two? How do we determine who indeed is working for someone else versus working for themselves? As we'll see today, that distinction is not always clear. It's very murky. And there, we're, the case that we're going to say today, the, you know, the U.S. case, actually went before the Supreme Court of the United States. So this is like highest court in the land, and even at the highest level, there's still a gray area. There's still ambiguity. We're going to look at this through a Jewish lens and hopefully come away with some important ideas and distinctions. And of course, you will have the chance to be the judge. So buckle up, get your gavels and your robes ready. Let's get cracking. Let's welcome everybody. I don't think I welcomed... Um, uh, the folks that joined us after we initially began. Zahava, welcome. Mom, hey, welcome. Great to see you. Steve, welcome. And Mindy, welcome. Good to see you. All right. We got the mishpacha. Good. All right. So let's first clarify why the need to kind of identify who is self-employed versus who is an employee. Why is that relevant? Let me turn this over to you guys and ask an open-ended question. Why would we need to know whether someone works for someone else or whether, whether they work for themselves? In, how is it, we say in Yiddish or Hebrew or English, how is it negeya? How is it like, why, why does it, why do we even care? So that's an open question to you. Why do you think it matters whether someone is classified as an employee or as an independent contractor? Jump in. A tax issue. Good. Tax good. Tax issues. Good. 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 Who pays more? Who pays less? Jump in on that. Like, what, what's what? When, yeah. When I was self-employed, self-employed pay more. Adina Marco, yes. You have to. When you're self-employed, you have to pay the self-employment tax. You have to pay the whole thing. The whole it's thing. Like your employer pays half and you pay half. Right. You got to take care of the social security. You got to take care of that. You got the whole, you got, you're holding the whole bag. It's all yours. Good. Why else might the law be interested in who is deemed to be an employee versus independent contractor? Liability. When you're an independent 
Contractor, you get to set your rules. Okay, good. Good. Get to set your rules. Good. What else? What else? Liability. Liability. Good. I want to give you a few categories here. Let's talk about the benefits. What are the benefits that are enjoyed exclusively by employees and not by independent contractors? So um, there are certain laws about discrimination that apply to employees, right? You cannot be discriminated against um, as, I mean, legally, right, by, the, by an employer. Um, unions and collective bargaining, these are things that apply to employees. If you're an independent contractor, you set your own rules, right? And, and I would hope you don't discriminate against yourself. I hope you negotiate a good contract with yourself. But again, these are not benefits that you enjoy as an independent contractor. Are you with me on this? Yes. I mean, there's obviously like um, federal laws that, that, that pertain to every, you know, citizen in the land, but as far as labor law, employees have certain protections. Social security, that's paid by someone else, liability, disability, pension, etc. So all of these are protections that we give to employees in our current system of, of, uh, of the economy, of the government, of law. The secular court's perspective, in general, just, just to have clarity right at the top of this class, the U.S. court's uh, position, by and large, is that many of these benefits, or many benefits in general, ought to be provided by the top of the food chain. In other words, the employee, the one who's working, so they, a lot of these benefits should be provided by the one who is at the top. If you keep on going up that ladder, who's at the top? The head of the company? Good. So let the company, let the head of the company provide for a lot of these benefits. Now, if I am, so if I am an employee, so then the law will hold my boss responsible for providing many of these basic benefits. If I work for myself, right? Not if I'm, if I'm, not if I'm working for someone else. If I work for myself as an independent contractor, then I am responsible for myself. Are you with me on this? We again go to the CEO, but who's the CEO if you're an independent contractor? You. So again, the law is pretty much the same. We always hold the one who's at the top responsible. The question is, are you at the top or someone else at the top? So if you're self-employed, that means that you're not only the worker, you're the boss. Good, so you have to pay you. Fantastic. So who's on the hook for providing for you? You guessed it, you. But if you're working for someone else, yeah, if you're working in a company, so the law will say, the government will say, look, the employee, the employer, yeah, let's say you work for Coca-Cola. Great, nice local, uh, a nice local um, a company. You work for Coca-Cola, great. Coca-Cola has to pay taxes on your behalf. Why? That's the way it is. They're the boss, they're on the top, they're on top of the food chain, they're on the hook to take care of you. And so they have to pay this tax and that tax and social security tax, et cetera. They gotta, they gotta cover at least a portion of the, of the benefits. Why? That's the way it works. That's what we take the benefits and we say we go up the food chain, you're responsible. Whoever's at the top, you have a responsibility for the one that is down that, uh, down that ladder. If you're self-employed, I'm just going to repeat myself, if you're self-employed, yeah, so who's responsible? You. There's no one else on top, so you're responsible for you. That's the way it is. But the question here is, the question that comes up is how do we determine whether someone actually works for someone else 
whether there's someone else on top of them or whether they work for themselves. As we'll see, it's not always so clear. You think, well, one second, just take a look at the org chart. I mean, take a look at the on org chart. Take a look at the company uh, schematic. Is there anyone on top or not? It's as we know life is. It's not always so clear cut. So let's go back in time about 80 years and check out a case that ended up, as I mentioned earlier, in the Supreme Court of the United States. This is a very famous case, the United States versus Silk. All right, take a look. I'm going to share my screen with you. I'm going to read this case. It's a long text. Sit back, relax, enjoy, pull out the popcorn. It's about to get freilich. It's about to get exciting. All right, I know not everyone has popcorn. I should have, uh, should have let you know in the email before the class. Don't forget to, to pop some popcorn. Um, this is about to get, there you go, virtual popcorn. It's about to get exciting. Okay, so here, uh, let me get it ready f on my side. I'm going to start with case number one, U.S. versus Silk. Okay, and Silk, by the way, is the Silk Coal Company. They were a company that was uh, engaged, was, was working with coal, as we'll see in this case study. Here we go. What is an employee? U.S. v. Silk, case one, part A. All right, I'm going to read. Between 1936 and 1939, the U.S. government collected taxes from Albert Silk of the Silk Coal Company under the new Social Security Act. The taxes were levied on Silk as an employer of certain workmen, some of whom were engaged in unloading railway coal cars and others who were making retail deliveries of coal by truck. Subsequently, Silk sued the government for unfairly levying the tax, claiming the workers were independent contractors. I just want to be very clear here. Albert Silk was being charged by the government for taxes on behalf of his workers until he sued the government and said, they're not my workers, they're working for themselves. Are you with me on this? Yes? What's he trying to do? Let me stop sharing for a second. What's he trying to do? He's trying to get out of? Paying taxes. Paying taxes. Yeah. Oh, I should pay these guys taxes, Social Security. Oh, they don't work for me. They work for themselves. Let them pay themselves. Okay. This is what Albert Silk was saying. If you notice that first paragraph, I know I, know I stopped sharing because I want to see you guys. And also because I want to clarify one thing. And this is going to come up in today's lesson very specifically. There were two categories of workers at the Silk Coal Company. Number one... I'm just going to be very clear here. Number one, there were people who, the trains came in with coal. There were people who unloaded the railway cars of the coal and dumped it in the yard or wherever it went into. That's one category of worker. The unloaders of the cars of train, the, tra the coal cars of train, the train cars of coal. Second category of worker were those that then loaded up the coal and delivered it to the customer. Are you with me on this? So one unloaded the trains, and the other one took it to the customer. Let's continue back inside. Silk was paying for, for, for all of it. He was paying the Social Security tax for everyone. He sued and said, they're working for themselves. Not, not my responsibility. Let's continue. It gets complicated. Silk's Coal Yard in Kansas. Okay, here we get some background. Silk's Coal Yard in Kansas included a gathering place for workers. 
railroad tracks upon which carloads of coal were delivered by the, by the railroad, and bins for the different types of coal. Silk paid those who worked as unloaders an agreed price per ton to unload coal from the railroad cars. Those men came to the yard when and as they pleased and were assigned a car to unload and a place to put the coal. They furnished their own tools, worked when they wished, and worked for others at will. One of these unloaders testified that he worked as regularly as a man has, as a man has to when he has to eat. But there was also testimony that some of the unloaders were floaters who came to the yard only intermittently. So that's category one, the unloaders. We'll call them literally the unloaders. Okay, let's continue. Silk owned no trucks himself, but contracted with workers who owned their own trucks to deliver coal at a uniform price per ton. This was paid to the trucker out of the price Silk received for the coal from the customer. When an order for coal was taken in the company office, a bell was rung in the building used by the truckers. The truckers voluntarily adapt, adopted a call list upon which their names came up in turn, and the top man of the list was given an opportunity to deliver the coal ordered. The truckers were not instructed how to do their jobs, but were merely given a ticket telling them where the coal is to be delivered and whether the charge is to be collected or not. Any damage caused by them was paid for by the company. The district court found... Okay, so one second. <laughs> hold on, hold on, hold on. I, I, I'm going to pause here, okay? Um, let me pause here for a second. Again, we have two categories of workers, the unloaders and the truckers. The unloaders worked on site. The truckers brought their own trucks, and they just moved it, and there was a system. The next trucker up, based on this list, had the opportunity to take the job and then delivered it, whatever. You should know this case went through multiple layers of uh, levels of lower courts and then went to the Supreme Court. So this is the Supreme Court summarizing what happened up until this point when they had to rule on it. Are you with me on this? Yeah? By the way, one thing that, that you notice when you, uh, well, if you've been to law school, then you know this. If you've taken any of these courses or dabbled in law, you know that judges, and you got to do a lot of writing. There's a lot of writing that's involved, right? Mindy, am I right? There's a lot of writing? Yes. Okay. Um, case studies. Yeah, it's unbelievable. Case studies. Case studies and compare. Yeah, exactly. All right, so back inside, the Supreme Court now cites the lower court. The district court found, okay, that's the lower court, that the truckers could and often did refuse to make a delivery without penalty. In other words, they could say, I don't want the job. Further, the court found that the truckers could come and go as they pleased and frequently left the premises without permission. They could and did haul for others when they pleased. They paid all the expenses of operating their trucks and furnished extra help necessary to, to, to the delivery of the coal and all equipment except the yard storage bins. No record was kept of their time. They were paid after each trip at the end of the day or at the end of the week as they requested. Okay, that's the case. So, I want to ask you a question. Based on what we have so far, all we have so far is a case. We don't even have the full case laid out there. We have, like, pieces of the case. We know that the U.S. government levied a tax on this fellow Silk, owner of the Silk Coal Company, and he paid it. And now he's suing the government for paying taxes that he feels he doesn't owe. Why should I pay these? I'm paying taxes for employees. I don't have any employees. Everyone just works for themselves. 
They happen to show up at my place of business, but they're working for themselves. That was his claim. Okay, that's his claim. The government says, stop hacking a China. You know what that means? I mean, stop, uh, yeah, stop, stop, stop draining a cup. Stop, uh, how do you train? How, what's another expression? Stop fooling around, right? Stop lying. Of course they work for you. Who else do they work for? They're working for you. They're unloading your coal. They're shipped. They're, they're transporting your coal. They work for you. I, I don't have, I didn't, I didn't have a chance to, to put together a written poll, but I, I want to ask you a question. Raise your hand. We're going to do old-fashioned. Ah, technology. Oh, well. Hopefully next week we'll be back to the, uh, to the to push button. Raise a hand. Who thinks the people who worked for and around Silk, who thinks they're employees and who thinks they're independent contractors? Go. So raise your hand if you think they are employees. Independent contractors. No, 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 no. Independent contractors. Okay. Um, I'm seeing more hands go up as independent contractors. Okay, so let's now have a quick discussion. Why do you think employee? Why do you think independent contractor? What's the, even if you don't think so, what's the argument for employee? Why might they be employees? Mark. I personally was involved with this because of a dispute I had with someone who I worked with. Mark, you don't look a day young, you don't look a day older than, uh, I'm kidding, 1939, this is going back a few years. You mean a similar, a similar case, and I'm just joking, yeah. Long story short, what I was told is what defines employment is control. If you make your own hours, uh, you probably are not an employee. Okay, so if you have to be at a certain time in a certain place, etc., then you might be an employee. If you can set your own stuff, then it's a little good, good, good. So what, how would you apply to this case? In this case, the unloaders came, those who unloaded the coal came when they wanted to come. They had no set time, they had to be there. Uh, so to me, they sound like independent contractors. And those who delivered the coal were under the same situation. Uh, they came when they wanted, they delivered when they wanted to deliver, they, they didn't when they didn't. Uh, and so under that situation, neither is under control. They are under their own control. I'd say they're both independent contractors. Okay, so you're saying, you're uh, saying independent. Yes, Morris, good. How were they paid? Ah, how were they paid? So, um, how were they paid? So in the case we read... Trying to remember, the truckers were paid after each trip, at the end of the day, or at the end of the week, as they requested. They got a cut of each delivery. Let's say the delivery of the coal, let's say the amount of coal that they hauled was $1,000, uh, $100 worth of coal. So they got a cut of that, whatever the agreed upon uh, amount was per, you know, per, um, uh, I think it was based by weight. That's what it said. The, the unloaders got paid per ton, uh, a price per ton to unload the coal, and the delivery people also, they, pay, they got paid, um, one second, they got paid a rate for delivery. A rate for delivery, yeah, but how much was it? I mean, not exactly how much, but I think it was also based on the weight. I'm pretty sure. It doesn't matter. Yeah. They're, they're 
paid by the delivery. The other aspect of the truckers yeah. is that they use their own trucks and they right. made their own expenses. Oh, I excellent. I issue myself in my own business. Excellent, and excellent. Out of this particular Supreme Court case, the IRS came up with 20 specific factors as to whether you're an independent contractor or you're an employee. Excellent, excellent, perfect. Take a look. Way, Georgia has three additional on top of that that I bought the state of Georgia and won. Oh, wow. I have so, precedence for the state of Georgia for independent contracts. Sahaba, you're, you're like all in on this. This is fantastic. I'm, I feel like I'm going to learn tonight from. I also, uh, sat in, I also sat in court when I was fighting independent contractors versus independent employee versus independent contractor when I was in the corporate world and sat in court. Arguing. Interesting. In that case, we lost. My own part, I, my own case, I won. Very. In your own case, out of curiosity, were you, um, were, was your, was your goal to be deemed independent contractor yes. or employee? Independent contractor. Yes. Got it. Okay. Very I'd cool. I closed down my business if it were, if they were employees. I wouldn't be able to afford it. <laughs> Got it. Okay. No, okay. it's as simple as that. And, and I talked to all of them and they agreed to be independent contractors, understanding and there are benefits to being an independent contractor. Sure, 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 sure. Very interesting. Yeah, you can ha you can list expenses on your tax return, etc. Yeah. Okay. All right. This is great. This is great. So now it's now it's not theoretical. Now we're getting to real real <laughs> stuff over here. This is great. And now I want to get to text number three. I know we skipped text one and two. We're going to get back to that. I'm doing this class in a bit of a different order than than the way the 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 text rolls out. Let's take a look at text three. This comes from. The Social Security Act. This is regulation number 90 of the U.S. Treasury Social Security Act. Um, I'm going to pull this up and let's give it a whirl. Um, I'm going to read this one as well. Generally, the employer-employee relationship exists when the person for whom services are performed has the right to control and direct the individual who performs the services, not only as to the result to be accomplished by the work, but also as to the details and means by which that result is accomplished. That is, an employee is subject to the will and control of the employer, not only as to what shall be done, but how it shall be done. The right to discharge is also an important factor indicating that the person possessing that right is an employer. Other factors characteristic of, of, an employee, of an employer are the furnishing of tools and the furnishing of a place to work to the individual who performs the services. In general, if an individual is subject to the control or direction of another merely as to the result to be accomplished by the work, but not as to the means and methods for accomplishing the result, he is an independent contractor and not an, not an employee. I want to give you an example. Classic example in my world. We have, as you all know, if you've seen any of the stuff that we've ever put out, you know that we have someone who designs our Marketing materials. If we have a class, a course, a lecture, there's usually a graphic that goes along with it. And I am not designing these graphics. I'm sorry for in case anyone's thinking, oh, wow, the rabbi's talented. I do not design this. I, I create the text and the concept and all that stuff, and I send it off. We have a designer who works in Toronto, Ontario, Canada, and she is fantastic, and she creates the designs, and she sends it. We go back and forth a little bit, and that's how it's done. And you know what? You know what I've never told her? Not once in the last three, four, five years that we've been working together? I've never told her, I would like you to use um, 
Affinity, which is a Mac program, instead of Photoshop. I want you to use, yeah, InDesign instead. Never did I get involved in the software that she's using to create it. Never did I tell her, you know, when she has to work, how she has to work. I just need a design, right? That's all I need. And so I think it would be very clear, this is like more of a, to me, it's clear cut, that she's not an employee of In-Town Jewish Academy or Chabad in Town. She is an independent contractor who's doing work for us. Straight up, straight up. Correct? Clear cut? Yeah. So Silk is saying, let me make this Talmudic. Silk is saying, yeah, the cold dude, he's saying, look, I have a place and people come to work at their time that they want to, when they want to, how they want to, etc. They happen to do the work that I need, great, but they're not, I don't, they're not my employees. The government is saying, Dude is running an operation. These are his workers. Come on, you're, 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 you're fooling around. Listen to this. Listen to this. Actually, no. Before, before I was about to tell you how the court ruled. But before I tell you that, let's look at a, at a very intriguing learning exercise. I don't always do these, but I, I do want to do this. Let me pull it up for you on the screen. Um, take a look. There are four criteria of Treasury Regulation number 90. There are four criteria that identify a worker as an employee rather than as an independent contractor. So which of these apply? If we wanted to separate the colon loaders from the truck drivers, right? So which of these apply to the colon loaders, which of the truck drivers? Let's do this together. We may not, there, there may not be a perfect answer, but I think this is gonna be instructive to go through this conversation together. So everyone, you can unmute and jump in. You know, uh, it's, about, it's about chiming in on this. All right, so criteria number one is the employer tells worker not just what to do, but how to do it. Does that apply to the colon loaders? Yes. Yes. Uh, ultimately, the Supreme Court said yes. Does that apply to the truck drivers? No. No. Okay. Good. Very good. Employer provides tools for the work. Does that, does that apply to the colon loaders? Yes. Does that apply to the truck drivers? No. Oh, you guys are good. And you're already seeing a distinction here that we might be able to make between the two. Uh, employer provides place for the work to be done. Does that, does that apply to the colon loaders? Yes. Does that apply to the truck drivers? No. Uh, no. Not really. They pick up the coal, then they yeah, take it to the good. customer. Yeah. Morris, you're saying yes? I'm saying yes. Okay. Like I said, there's no wrong answer. <laughs> Tell me why you say yes. The work is the delivery. Why? Are you asking me why I said that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, they have to meet someplace to start their cars, so therefore there is a place to okay. meet. Okay, okay, but that's... Up the Jerry, why do you say that that's not the place for the work to be done? Because the work gets done at the delivery location. Got it. Right. Okay. And, so you... and the drivers decide where they're going to go deliver. Right. But well, they have to start someplace. Right. Okay, so it's a little bit of this, a little bit of that. Okay, good, good. So we see a little bit of tension. There's a little bit, okay, you have to show up at a certain spot, but the actual work of the delivery happens not on company grounds. Okay, good, 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 good. Let's continue. Employer can tell worker when to come and go. Does that apply to the colon loaders? No. No. It was clear from the text, we can scroll up a little bit, that they would also... 
um, there were f some were floaters that came to the yard only intermittently. In other words, they couldn't, he couldn't really tell them. I mean, he could, but they didn't necessarily listen. So what about the truck drivers? Does yeah. the, no, also not, for sure not. Based on this, the Supreme Court actually, to um, borrow a Solomonic term, and I'm sorry for saying this, the Supreme Court split the baby. Weird, weird. Have you ever hear that expression? I don't know. I think I feel like I've heard that, but I, I feel like I don't like saying that. Anyway, they decide to split the baby and say, I literally double down on it. So when it comes to the coal unloaders, since it takes place on company grounds with company tools, it feels more like it's in the company. So therefore, the court says. Mazel tov, you're an employee. The truck drivers who furnish their own truck, they have their own trucks, they pay their own expenses, they haul as they wish, they have their own system of who's up next, they deliver to customers in a different, you know, random addresses, etc. The court says they indeed are the independent contractors. Let's read this inside. Here is the Supreme Court's decision. Um, case 1, Part B. The Supreme Court again cites the two lower courts, both the district court, that was, that's the lowest court, and the circuit court of appeals thought that the truckers and unloaders were independent contractors and allowed the recovery, recovery of silk of his money that he paid to the government because he paid their taxes and the court, lower courts ruled that they were not employees and he could get back his money. But the Supreme Court thought otherwise as noted here. Here we go. Probably... The court said it is quite impossible to extract a rule of thumb to define the limits of the employer-employee relationship. The Social Security Administration and the courts will find that degrees of control, opportunities for profit or loss, investment in facilities, permanency of relationship, and skill required in the claimed independent operation are important for deciding. These are just some of the criteria, by the way. No one is controlling and there's no one of these factors is controlling, nor is the list complete. These unloaders and truckers and their assistants are, from one standpoint, an integral part of the businesses of retailing coal or transporting freight. Their energy care and judgment may conserve their equipment or increase their earnings. But Silk is the director of their business. That's on the one hand, that Silk is the, the balabas, as we would say, right? He's, he's in charge. On the other hand, the truckers... Oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. That's more... Uh, relevant to the unloaders. On the other hand, the truckers, or maybe that's both, but the other hand only belongs to the truckers. The truckers hire their own assistants, own their trucks, pay their own expenses, with minor exceptions, and depend upon their own initiative, judgment, and energy for a large part of their success. Both lower courts, in both cases, have determined that these workers are independent contractors, giving full consideration to the concurrence of the two lower courts. In a contrary result, we cannot agree that the unloaders in the silk case were independent contractors. They provided only picks and shovels. They had no opportunity to gain or lose except from the work of their hands and these simple tools. That the unloaders, and by the way, this is going to be a line that we are going to analyze. I'm going to keep that highlighted. That the unloaders did not work regularly is not significant. They did work in the course of the employer's trade or business. This brings them under the coverage of the act. That's another line that's key. They are of the group that the Social Security Act was intended to aid. That's another key phrase. Silk was in a position to exercise all necessary supervision over their simple tasks. Okay, so there are some, there are like three, we're not done yet, by the way. There are three sentences here 
three or four that are key to my analysis that I want to share with you soon. But first, let's continue. There are cases, too, where driver owners of trucks or wagons have been considered employees in accident suits at tort or under workman's compensation laws. But we agree with the decisions below that where the arrangements leave the driver owners so much responsibility as do the investment and management here, they must be held to be independent contractors. These driver owners are small businessmen. They own their own trucks. They hire their own helpers. It is the total situation, including the risk undertaken, the control exercise, the opportunity for profit from sound management that marks these driver owners as independent contractors. Okay, my friends, the court split the decision. Basically said that the... The unloaders, right, the, uh, this paragraph is, the unloaders are employees, and the truckers are independent contractors. And I will tell you that although this is a Supreme Court decision, there's a lot of tentative language there, as you saw. There's a lot of, you know, it's not so clear, we don't know, there's, these are factors, but they're not the only factors, and we don't even know how even to rank these factors, which is the most important, but you got to take the whole picture, and with this in mind, this is what we think, although the lower court said both are independent, we're going to say that these are employees, and these are independent, and that's what we think we know. That's what we think we think. That's, Rabbi, that's the, uh, yes. You know, I'm, I'm surprised that the decision was not based on liability. Explain. All right, well, who holds the liability, let's say, if a worker gets hurt, whether he's a driver or whether he's, you know, a coal, whatever it's called. The unloader, yeah. Um, that's a good question. Who, who, has that, who has that liability? Who has that liability? Good, maybe that was up for, for debate also. Maybe that was part of the question, who has liability? You're saying, what was their arrangement? What was their contractual arrangement? Who has the liability? Well, if somebody's an independent contractor, they have to carry their own liability, I would imagine. There um, was a lot. That's what I had to do. There, so the question is, yeah. as a cold, if, if the person comes and goes at their own leisure, yep. you know, is there a liability issues there if somebody's hurt on the job? I don't know. Any damage, I'm going to read from the original case, any damage caused by them was paid for by the company. That's referring to the truckers. Any damage caused by them was paid for by the company. That's an interesting, I don't know if that's liability. That might be something else. That might be if they dropped the coal or something and, uh, you know, or, or the coal damaged something. I, I'm not sure. It's not clear. I don't, you know, we have, we have an excerpt. It's not the full thing. And certainly I wasn't with all the evidence and not privy to all the, all the documents and everything. It's a, you're asking a good question, but it seems like that wasn't one of the major factors that, the, that, that, that was cited in this decision over here, at least in the excerpt that we have. But what's what, to me, what's fascinating are those lines that I highlighted. And I just want to go, I'm going to put it back on the screen because I feel like I want to highlight this. When they noted, and this is going to be really important, when they noted that the unloaders, the coal unloaders should be deemed, in, uh, sorry, not independent, but employees, look what they wrote. They, had, they provided only picks and shovels. It's almost like trying to, to, to evoke sympathy. They only had picks. These guys, they didn't have trucks. That's the truckers. These guys, they only had picks and shovels. They had no opportunity to gain or lose except from the work of their hands and these simple tools. You know what it's saying? And, uh, they are of the group that the Social Security Act was intended to aid. What's the court saying? You know what the court is saying? That, at the, that ultimately, what's the point of the Social Security Act? 
to take care of an otherwise vulnerable worker. That the boss should take care of the worker. Because otherwise you're saying that you're so independent you can take care of yourself. The court says the guys that are unloading the coal can't take care of themselves. They don't have the money. They don't have the wherewithal. They don't have this. They don't, they're not that high level. In other words, not a judgment of, of, of intelligence or ability. But they're coming to work with simple tools. The boss should cover the social security. That's the point. The boss should take care of them. The guys who own trucks, you have a truck, you hire your own people, you're already a, a gans balabas of your own thing, good, you're your own, you're your own boss. You're independent. Does what I'm saying make sense from the language of the decision? You with me on that? It's, now, we could argue with this, and, and by all means, I have no problem with that. I'm not trying to argue right, wrong, or otherwise. I'm just trying to, uh, to analyze what the Supreme Court is saying and what it seems was compelling them in their decision. You see, I think we focus on who's paying the tax. But the court was actually thinking about who gets the benefit of the paid tax and the actual Social Security. I think the government's perspective, or at least the court's thought about the government's perspective, is that Social Security is a benefit. And now the question is, who should provide the benefit? Should, the, should Silk provide it for these people, or should they provide it for themselves? And the court says, if you own your own truck, and you have your own thing, and you haul other things and whatever, then you can provide your own Social Security, essentially. You can pay your own tax. But if you show up with a, a little thing, and you don't have your own work otherwise, and maybe you don't show up, he, maybe he doesn't tell you you have to be there 9 to 5. You can show up when you want. But you're still in that vulnerable population. You don't have other, lots of other things going on. Who should pay for the Social Security? Silk. Silk should pay for it. Again, we can argue with that, and it might sound like a dangerous argument, and I might agree with that. But based on all of the factors that are a little bit, you know, this way and that way, and based on these few sentences that I'm reading that I believe fairly strongly represent what swayed the court, it seems like that's what was the determining factor. Again, if you look at these, these, the, the language here, they provided only picks and shovels. They had no opportunity to gain or lose except from the work of their hands and these simple tools. Um, they worked in the course of the employer's trader business, okay? This brings them under the coverage of the act. They are of the group that the Social Security Act was intended to aid. In other words, it's not about, um, it's not about like the tax payment as much as it is about the who's, who, it's about ensuring that they get the benefit. And that, we, we, the court is saying, they should be protected by someone else covering their Social Security. That yeah, seems to be the decision. Yeah. Jump um, in. Um, if, isn't it you're entitled to Social Security if you're a full-time employee? But if you're part-time, the employer is not obligated to pay your Social Security tax. That's a good point and a good question. Correct. That is incorrect? Yes, even if you're part-time, they have to pay Social Security. There you go. Part-time, it's right. things like health benefits and pension that you don't get. Right. Oh, okay. Zahaba, thank Social you for Security clarifying. is on everybody. Awesome. Okay. Zahaba, thank you for clarifying, because I was about to say that's a little bit out of my... Uh, out of my, uh, my expertise. But I'm very glad that we have uh, clarification. Yes, Morris. 
it sounds like you're going to be paying the design of Social Security into this preset. Say it again. It sounds as if with this silly case, you may have to pay the designers that you're sending to Canada their Social Security under but this premise. If you look at it, that they have their own computers and their own software and they do work for other people and they're not uh, called, they're not completely dependent and, and, and you know, to the work here and, and, you know, that we have for them, I think it's more along the lines of the truckers. But look, I... I the there's no I have no, no I, they are they are independent your your designer is an independent contractor yeah but yeah. she's the same thing as the, the co the co-worker no she's not supervised she's not told what hours to work she does it however she wants to do it she's given an assignment and she presents the result oh I, I disagree yeah uh, listen That's good okay. look it's it the, the, these are even the court. You know what? I think I think this is a perfect segue into the next text because I think the Supreme Court itself is saying how complicated it is. Take a look at text four. Few problems in the law have given a greater variety of application and conflict in results than the cases arising in the borderland between what is clearly an employer-employee relationship and what is clearly one of independent uh, entrepreneurial dealing. The court, this is the Supreme Court's decision, U.S. versus Silk. That's literally what it says. Few problems have given a greater variety of application and conflict. In other words, the court is saying we're all over the map. Sometimes we're going this way, sometimes we're going that way. And you know what? We're trying our best. It's a very... Ambiguous, and I think what Zahava said before is also very telling, is that, you know, 20 criteria rise this way and then another three in the state. But, but and, and I think, Zahava, you mentioned that you fought for something and you won, which means that there is, there is flexibility. It's not clear-cut. It could go this way. It could go that way. It's get, make a compelling argument this way, that way, and Baruch Hashem, thank God, you, you got what you, you know, what you needed. But the point is, that the court itself, the Supreme Court, is acknowledging, even as we rule, it's not definitive. It's not so clear-cut. It's complicated. So what I want to say is like this. That if you distill it down to the core, what you notice, at least from the way I'm reading the decision of the, uh, of the Supreme Court, is that a, what, what drives this question in, in a very uh, uh, real way, or to a very large extent, it's not just the hours and the dictating of who does what and how, but it's also about some, some level of, of, of understanding of who needs to be taken care of by someone else versus who we deem should have enough wherewithal to take care of themselves. It's not that we're looking into people's bank accounts, but understanding that, look, if you're dependent on the other one for so many different factors, then yes, they should be covering these benefits. Whereas if you are independent in, in, in these different criteria, then yes, you can cover it yourself. And that is kind of where it lies. That's how U.S. law has dealt with this. And in various ways, this is one example, but it's gone here and there. Jewish law also deals with the question, same question. Who is an employee? And who is an independent contractor? And these cases are fascinating. The cases that come up in halacha and Jewish law. But, and here's the major idea, one of the major big ideas of this class. The Jewish law has fundamentally a different objective in making this determination. 
Although, again, just to restate this, Jewish law also deals with the question of who's an employee and who's an independent contractor. There's a fundamentally different objective in making that call. It's, and, and, and the reason what drives that decision-making radically alters the parameters by which we make that very decision. In other words, why are we determining in Jewish law and halacha who is this, who's that? It's not like we, it's not like halacha has, Jewish law has this idea of social security, etc. So there's another motivation that drives the question, which then informs how we come to a conclusion on that very question. So, and I'm speaking very vague, and I know that, but it's going to all become clear very soon. To really understand this, I want to show you two cartoons. Okay, that's always how we resolve these uh, very thorny issues is by looking at cartoons as uh, the classic way of doing this. All right, so here, take a look at your screen as this appears. Look at the one on the left first. Okay, here we go. Fellow on the street corner with his hat up, you know, his hat uh, out. Thank you for the job offer, sir, but I'd hate to give up being an independent contractor, right? This guy is saying, I appreciate the job offer, but I work for myself. Then you have the other guy on the right, I'm so, and the boss says to him, this guy is out, I'm sorry I made you stay up all night working unpaid on my apology for slavery speech. Okay, so it seems like a politician who has the speechwriter who's working on the apology for slavery speech who had to work all night unpaid, or the intern unpaid, to do that. Okay, so this is, uh, these are, the, um, I guess maybe not an intern, let's just call it an employee because then I'm just going to make it more complicated. So independent contractor on the left, employee on the right. By the way, it reminds me of the joke where the fellow, the, the beggar goes to uh, the banker's house. Five o'clock in the morning, knocks on his door. The guy uh, hears somebody knocking. He thinks it's a dream. No, nope, it's getting louder and louder. Puts on a robe. He runs downstairs, opens the front door. He sees uh, the local guy asking, can I help you? Yeah, can you have a few dollars? He's like, one second. It's 5 a.m. What are you doing? 5 a.m.? You're waking me up? To he says, Mr. Banker, I don't tell you when you show up to work. You don't tell me when I show up to work. I'm going to work my own hours, right? Similar concept, right? Independent contractor, don't tell me when to do my work. 5 a.m. is good for me. All right, so here's the point. The independent, everyone, again, I'm just going to use like Talmudic terminology. Each one has something that the other one doesn't have. So let, let, let's actually come to this in conversation. What is the advantage? I don't mean tax advantage. I mean, what's the, the advantage of being an independent contractor? The guy, the cartoon on the, on the, the comics on the, on the left, What's the advantage of being an independent contractor? One word. What's the advantage? Independence. Independence. Good. What else? Give me another word, a synonym. Independence. What else? Freedom. Freedom. What else? Another word. Self-directed. Destiny. Good. What else? Self-directed. Self-directed. Autonomy. Good. All of this comes with, with independence. With, with Sorry. All of this comes with... Um, being self-employed, being an independent contractor. Great. What's the downside? What's well, the downside? 
risk. You get the risk, right? You're not getting Stress. a paycheck. Stress, <laughs> risk, excellent, right? You're giving up, essentially, you're giving up an element of security for the freedom, okay? Now, let's look at it the other way. Let's look at it from the employee's perspective. What's the, what's the advantage of being an employee? Control. The advantage. Oh, control. control. Okay. The lack of control that someone else is structuring it and you just do it. Right, but you're saying... You don't, have to, you don't have to get the sales. You don't have to find out where the suppliers are. You don't have to worry about any of the decision making. You just do what you're told. We're not I, talking about management. That's right, right, right. I think, right. I think we're talking about the, the two sides. So I think Morris was talking about the one who the boss has the control. But boss, yeah, but, right. but, but let's refresh. But, but let's focus on the on the worker. So what's the oh. benefit? Yeah, what's the benefit of being an employee? The benefit is security. Yeah, you don't have to worry about it. You yeah, it's, you get a paycheck. You get a paycheck, right? You get a, you, you get you get paid every few weeks or whatever it is, or every week or two weeks or a month. You get your paycheck. That's it. I mean, you got to do your job, obviously, but you get your paycheck, security, stress, less stress. You don't have to, you don't have to worry about the, this and that and the other. You're just doing your job. What's the downside? What's the downside? Being fired. What else? Losing position. Good. What else? Lack of freedom. You don't have, you don't have autonomy. In other words, literally... The advantage of one is the disadvantage of the other. What, what, what's the asset to one is the liability of the other. So I'm going to state this very simply, and hopefully it comes out very simply. The independent contractor has freedom, has a lot of freedom, but not a lot of security. Whereas the employee has more security, less freedom. So it's, it's choose which, which one do you want. Do you want the freedom? And it could go great, but you also might not earn the money because it's up to you, right? It's now it's the balls in your court. Anyone who's owned, and I'm looking around here, and I know some of you have owned your own business, and it's not easy. It's not. It's not easy. You got you got to do everything yourself. You're not getting. You're not guaranteed a page. There's no guarantee. There's no security. There's no guarantee. But you don't work. For, no one tells you what to do. Okay, so that's one package. The other package is steady paycheck. Yeah, you're not worrying about the paycheck. Now, you might be worried about how much the paycheck is. That's another, that's another all right, discussion. Hey, Lily. Right? But you got that security. You know it's coming. It's every, every few weeks, whatever, it's going to hit the bank. Great. But you're giving up your freedom. You can't do what you want when you want. Yeah, you, you're, you're working for someone. That's, that's the package that you get. So, yeah. You know, it's also, it's also said that return is a function of risk. Correct. Correct. Excellent. Good way of putting it. What did he say? Return is, is commensurate to the risk. That's, that's the way it is. So the risk, yeah, function of, of, of risk. So, so with the greater risk comes greater reward. Or, or let's put it differently. If you want greater reward, then you're going to be taking a greater risk. If you want less risk, you're going to get less reward. That's the way it is. So you want something more stable? No problem. But you're just, you're, you're, it's going to come at a cost. You can't, listen, we know, we know the expression, right? You can't have your cake and eat it too. Although you can. You can buy a cake and then eat it. But I think what it means is you can't have your cake while having eaten it. 
If you ate it, then you don't have it anymore. I think that's the way it's supposed to be, but I digress. Um, one of those things that I've never really understood, but I think I understand it. Unless you're a baker who's an independent contractor. Uh, uh, oh, hey, we are not, we are not talking about, we are not talking about any bakeries and independent contractors and anything like that. All right. Third rail content, Mark. All right. Back to our story. Back to our story. So what we have here is something that I think we all know, but I just wanted to make sure that it's coming up in conversation at the forefront of our mind because this will be at the, at the heart of the Jewish philosophy behind labor law, behind employment law, behind determining who is an employee, who is an employer. A lot of it is going to be looking at where the risk and reward is, like where does that lie, who's got, okay, so that's, that's the philosophy or the psychology of Jewish labor law. What are the details? Okay, so hold, hold that for a second, and then now let me un unfold or unwrap or whatever it is lay out some details of Jewish labor law. Okay, so here's an overarching rule. The overarching rule of Jewish labor law is you go by the contract. If there's a contract, you honor the contract. If everyone signed, if both parties signed the contract, that's it. That's it. Look at the contract. But absent of a contract, let's say there's no contract, and you're, you're probably thinking, how could there be no contract? Remember, Halacha, Jewish law, goes back 3,300 years. Talmudic law goes back 1,600 years. So we're talking about ancient systems of law that precede, predate modern contracts that are very detailed with fine print. It just didn't exist necessarily. So yes, there were contracts even back in the day, but not always were there contracts. Sometimes it just happens that there's no contract. So what happens if there's no contract? So then the, the, the next default is you go by minagamakum. You go by the local minag. Minagamakum means you go by the local custom. You go by what people do in that place. And that becomes very, um, it's a very strong criteria in halacha and Jewish law. If the local custom is to work five days a week or, or six days a week or 40 hours a week or 30 or 50 hours a week, there's a lot of strength in Jewish law with local custom. Now, again, if there's a contract that says you work 60 hours a week, you got to work 60 hours a week. But if there's no contract, now the question is, oh, they're not working the amount of time they should be working, then we default to what the local custom is. But what happens, and here's where we really want to have this conversation, what happens if there's no contract and there's no specific local custom? Some do it this way, some do it that way. It's like the joke about uh, the synagogue, you know, the, the one where they came to a certain point in, on, in the Yom Kippur service and uh, somebody said, please rise. And the other guy says, please rise. You can, you can remain seated. And now a whole dispute breaks out. A whole fight breaks out in the synagogue as to whether or not you're supposed to stand or sit. And, and, and the synagogue is split. They decide to, to find the oldest member of the synagogue and ask him because he probably has a good memory. Uh, he wasn't in shul because it was Yom Kippur and he was old, so they went to his house. And at the house, they asked him, can you tell us we're up to this part of the prayers? Do we stand? So, so they said some people are saying in the synagogue that you're supposed to stand, and some saying you're supposed to sit. So what's the custom? He says, that is the custom. He says, no, no, what's the custom? He says, that is the custom. What do you mean? The custom is that some people say you stand and some people say you sit. There you go. So that sometimes it works that way. 
where, where the custom is some this and some that. And so then what do you do? If there's no clarity when it comes to employment law, so then how do you, how do you proceed? So there are various overarching labor laws that Jewish law mandate due to the nature of the work relationship. Okay? According to Jewish law, an employee, let's start off with the responsibilities of the employee. The, an employee must commit 100% of his or her efforts to work. In other words, if some, now we're not getting to the question of who's an employee versus an independent contractor. We're going to get back there in a second. But if you work for someone, right, if you are an employee, then your commitment ought to be 100% of that time, which means personal phone calls and you know, internet browsing and Facebook posting and Instagram checking and chatting and everything are, as Halakha puts it, I mean, without the modern examples, borderline theft. It doesn't come out and saying clearly that it's theft, but it's, it's, it's touching on theft. If somebody's paying you to work eight hours today, yeah, and you work five hours and three hours are spent, you know, with personal stuff, it's... Jewish law, halacha says, that's not, uh, that's, not, that's not right. Because if somebody's paying you as an employee, someone's paying you to work for a certain time, then you are committed, you ought to be, you and I, we ought to be committed for 100% of our effort in that time to the work. Now, this is true even when the employee feels that they are being overworked as long as you're being paid for those hours, you got to put in the you got to put in the uh, put in the effort. Now, you want to quit? That's another. We'll talk about that soon. But if you're taking the money for those hours, you got to put in the work. Yeah, but I don't get treated right. Two separate issues. There's the responsibility of the employer. But now we're talking about we started with the responsibility of the employee. The responsibility of the employee is to put in 100% of the efforts in that time. We find this, we find this um, in the story of Yaakov and Lavan, Jacob and Laban. Laban, of course, was the uncle and father-in-law. It's complicated. Father-in-law twice, even more complicated, of Jacob. Jacob worked for him for 20 years. And his father-in-law slash uncle was a ganif, a swindler, a crook, a good-for-nothing and no goodnik. Right, all that good stuff, or not good stuff. And yet, if Yaakov was getting a paycheck, if Jacob was getting paid, he worked. He, he testified about himself this way. Take a look at the following text, beautiful text from the Torah. And you know that with all my power I have served Lavan or Laban. These 20 years, this is Jacob, these 20 years I have been with you, your, you, your ewes and your she-goats have not cast their young, and the rams of your flocks I have not eaten. That which was torn of beasts I did not bring to you, I bore the loss of it. Of my hand you demanded it, whether stolen by day or stolen by night. Thus I was. In the day the drought consumed me and the frost by night, and my sleep fled from my eyes. These 20 years have I been in your house, although... You change my wages 10 times. The point is, Jacob, yes, he's doing some complaining, and he is a little bitter, um, but what he's saying is, despite all that you did to me, I was dedicated to you, and I did my job. 
I did not shirk my responsibility. I did not cut corners. I did not lie or cheat or steal even subtly. I did my work honestly, even though you didn't hold, uphold your end of the agreement. This becomes canonized in Jewish law. Even if the employer is not acting so nicely, if you're being paid, you got to do the work. Does that make sense? Now, you can quit. But if you're still there taking a paycheck, you got to put it, that's the responsibility of the worker. Let's go on the other side. So, new, what's the responsibility of the employer? What's the, what, what does the boss have to do? The boss is committed to pay the employee for the hours worked regardless of perceived quality. If you agree to pay someone for the work, yeah, not an independent contractor to, to do your roofing or to, to, to paint your house. If you pay someone as an employee, you know, eight hours a day, whatever, and you're like, oh, I don't think you did that exactly right. I don't, I don't like the way you did that or that email I would have written differently. I'm going to dock your pay. Nope, you can't do that. If they worked, you got to pay them. This is, a, and we, for this, we have another example. This is from the Talmud. Okay, Talmud text number two. Listen to this. Listen to this story. Once 400 jars of wine belonging to Rabbi, to, to Rabbi Huna turned sour. Rabbi Yehuda and the other scholars went in to visit him and said to him, the master ought to examine his actions. In other words, they said to him, look, Rabbi, Rav Huna, we love you, buddy, but um, if 400 jars of your wine turn sour, turn to vinegar, then uh, it's a sign from the heavens that you got to clean up something in your act. He said to them, am I suspect in your eyes? What, you guys are accusing me of something? They replied, is God suspect of punishing without justice? You're telling me that 400 barrels of wine or jars of wine that you had suddenly spoiled and you don't think there's any reason, divine reason? So he said to them, if you've heard any complaint against me, speak out. In other words, if you know something, then, then, then just say it. They replied, we have heard that the master does not give his sharecropper his lawful share of the vine twigs. Well, the way it works in Jewish law is that if you have a sharecropper, then you kind of, sh then the sharecropper who um, works but is also like a part owner has the ability to get a share in the vine twigs, amongst other things. And so they said, Ravuna, we heard that you're not giving your sharecropper the requisite amount of vine twigs. He replied, does he leave me any? He steals them all. In other words, I should give him. He's a crook. They said to him, the proverb says, if you steal from a thief, you also have a taste of it. You're calling him a thief, but you're not giving him what he deserves, so you're also a thief. He said to them, fine, I pledge to give the branches to him in the future. And from here on out, okay, you convinced me I was wrong. You're right, I will give him the, the branches. Some report that thereupon the vinegar became wine again. Others say that the price of vinegar went up so high that it was sold for the same price as wine. In other words, the end of the story is the rabbi ended up with either his wine back or with vinegar that he sold for a killing. Either way, it had a happy ending. But what's the point of the Talmudic story? Honestly, it cast the rabbi in a, very ne in a negative light. I mean, not very, but in a negative light. Look, he thought he was doing the right thing. This guy is supposed to be working for me. Supposed to, we have a deal. He gets these vine twigs or whatever. But this guy, he's, he's not doing the right thing by me. So they said to him, look, look, that's his issue. 
but you still have responsibility. Just because he cuts corners, you should cut corners. That's not right. He cuts corners, that's his issue. But you cutting corners, that's your issue. You can't cut corners. And that's, that again, is the way Jewish business law or labor law works today. The way it works is on both sides. So if you're getting paid, even if you don't like how you're getting paid, whatever it is, you got to do the work. You can quit, but if you're working and getting a paycheck, you got you to gotta work. On the other side, if somebody's working for you, you don't like it, okay, but they're doing the work, you got to pay them if they're an employee, if they're an employee, right? Not if they're a designer, you don't like the design, then you whatever. But if they're working for the hour, however that's determined, which we haven't yet this, uh, um, uh, stated, if they're working for you as an employee, you got to pay them, even if you're not so happy. In fact... In fact, Jewish law has a very unique and specific code of labor law regarding employer-employee relationships. Very unique, and it reflects the deeper goal in protecting, uh, a deeper objective, protecting the rights of workers. So here you go. I'm going to list a few. Number one, these are, these are rules that, that limit the employer. The employer cannot terminate the employee mid-work term unless he or she is negligent in harming the business. So let me explain. If you hired someone to work for you, you cannot just willy-nilly fire them. Now, one second. One second. If you made a work term of, uh, of a month, like I'm hiring you for a month, after a month, you're under no responsibility, under no obligation to keep, to keep them going. If it's a year, if it's two years, three years, five years, when that period is done, it's done. But if you hire them, within that time period, if you hire them for a year, and six months in, you're like, nah, I'm not interested anymore. Halacha says you can't just fire them. You're, you're obligated with this, uh, with this agreement. In fact, the only grounds for firing is if they're being negligent, and through their negligence, they're actually harming the business. That's the only justification for firing someone mid-work term. If they're stealing. If they're stealing, for sure. Right, if they're stealing, for sure. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. If they're stealing, that's harming the business. Correct. Absolutely. 100%. Um, even, even if the employee is negligent, the employer must warn him or her first and give them at least a little bit of time to correct the behavior and then... You can, uh, you can fire them. Next, the employer cannot withhold pay for the hours that were worked, even if he deems or she deems the work to be unsatisfactory, unless real harm and or monetary loss was incurred due to the, to the, to the lack of work, so, um, or to, to the shoddiness of the work. If it's just that, oh, I, I don't, I wasn't, I'm not thrilled with the way that came out, okay, fine. So then that's a conversation that has to happen, but you can't dock pay um, for those hours that were worked just because you don't like the way it was done. If an employer does fire the employee midterm, he must, he or she, he, the employee, employer, sorry, must continue to pay the worker the amount he would agree to take for doing nothing. If that makes sense. In other words, how much would you agree to get paid to not have to do that work? Okay, so then that's the amount. Now, there's not the full amount of, of payment, but it's some, it's some amount of, um, of payment that has to be paid 
if you decide to terminate their contract or their employment term midterm. In Israel, the custom, the local custom in Israel, and it's been like this for a while, is to pay severance to a fired worker, and the severance amount is chodesh l'shana, one month per year employed. So if somebody worked for, if somebody, somebody worked for you for 10 years, so the severance in the local custom, the custom, uh, the Jewish custom of severance is one month per year. So they work 10 years, 10 months of severance. In other words, 10 monthly paychecks of severance. Um, and from all of these laws, and there are many more, one could seemingly justifiably argue that Jewish law wishes to protect the work agreement made between employer and employee at all costs. So, right, so if, if you have an agreement, the agreement is that you're going to work for me for the next six months, I can't terminate that, right? I, I hired you, you're doing the job, I, I changed my mind, whatever it is, I, I, can't, I, can't just, I can't just end it, I can't terminate it. Even if there's justifiable cause, I have to give you a little bit of a chance to turn it around before I have to warn you and then give it a bit of a chance and only then can I actually fire. I can't dock payment, I can't dock a salary. It's very restrictive on the employer side in Jewish law. However, however, and, and so again, and, 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 and on the other side as well, we said that if you agree to do the work, if you're the employee, then you got to do the work. Like we had Jacob and Laban. Jacob, you know, wasn't easy, but he did the work. So it seemed that we want the work done. But there's one additional law that turns this whole idea on its head and gives us a much deeper perspective. Take a look at text number six. I'm going to pull it up on the screen and be amazed at what, the, what Halacha says. Give me a second. Let me just scroll over to the right text. Um, here we go. This is from the Code of Jewish Law. A worker, this is an employee, who wishes to break a contract and quit before the end of his agreed-upon term of employment, while unethical, in other words, that's not ideal, can do so at any time without being penalized even if the employer paid him in advance for the entire period agreed upon and the worker does not have any money to reimburse the employer, the worker cannot be forced to stay on the job as one may not, for, as one may not be forcibly enslaved to others. Rather, the worker owes the employer a debt for the balance. And I need to, tell, I need to highlight this because if there's anything that you get from the Jewish perspective, you need to get text number six. This text is huge. I just highlighted it. I'm going to actually not highlight it because it looks a little funny. But here's the point. This text is a major piece of this, of this class. If you work for someone at any point, midterm, not midterm, it doesn't matter, at any point, you can walk away without penalty. You can walk away without penalty. Even if you were paid for six months in advance, and now it's month three, you can walk away. The guy's like, give me back half my money. I don't have it. You can walk away. No one can force you to work in Jewish law. No one can force you to work because that is essentially forcing slavery. One may not be forcibly enslaved to others. You cannot force someone to do something for you. It just can't happen. Does that make sense? So listen to this. 
I said before, if you're on the job, even if you don't like the way it's working out, if you're being hired, you got to do the work. But I, hopefully it was clear what I said before. What I said before, if you're collecting a paycheck, you can't goof off. If you're still collecting the paycheck, you got to work. You can't have it both ways. But if you don't want to collect the paycheck, walk away. No problem. Or let's put it differently. If you want to walk away, great. Don't collect the paycheck, walk away. So Jewish law is very, very interesting and unique. And it does, I don't know if there's a parallel in U.S. law. Because I think Georgia is an at, what is it? Um, what, what's the expression? At will? Is that what it's called? At, um, right to work. Right to work. Which works both, which works both ways. It really is not helpful right to, to the employee. It doesn't help the employee. It's right. for the employer rights. It's a misnomer. That's correct. You can be fired for no reason at all, and you can quit for no reason at all. And you don't have, the employer doesn't have to give the employee any type of reasonable accommodation, such as bathroom breaks. Okay, so in Jewish law, that would be categorically um, rejected. Because in Jewish labor law, again, if, unless there's a contract that they agree to, if you sign a contract, then all bets are off. But, but Jewish law purely would say the following. Jewish law would say... That, no, the truth is, even with the contract, this, this might be binding. All right, Jewish law says that midterm, you cannot fire that person. You cannot fire them unless they're negligent and harming the business. And even then, you have to give them a warning. You can't just pull the plug. Uh, I'm sorry, I, I changed my mind. You can't pull the plug. But you know what? They can pull the plug on you. You can't, you're the employer. You cannot pull the plug on them but they can pull the plug on you and walk away. And that's true even if you've paid them in advance. Doesn't make a difference, they can walk away. They'll owe you the money. They can't steal, obviously. They'll owe you the money, but you can't force the work. Okay, so they'll have to pay it back, but you cannot force the work. Why? Because you're, there no, there's no slavery in Judaism. That's not how it works. You cannot be enslaved. Take a look at this text from the book of Leviticus. For unto me the children of Israel are servants. They are my servants, says God, whom I brought forth out of the land of Egypt. Says the Talmud, they are my servants, in other words, God's servants, and not servants to servants. Therefore, no agreement can bind the Jew to continue to work against his will. In Jewish law, you cannot force someone to work when they no longer wish to work. You cannot say, oh, you promised, or oh, you're on the hook for it. It's not, it's not it just doesn't exist. Does not exist. It's under the clause of no slavery. Remember the Exodus? Remember Passover? It's coming up, by the way. Yeah, no slavery means you cannot force someone to work. They said, I'm done. You're like, I still got a job. See you later. You have no recourse. They walk away. You cannot sue them. You cannot punish them. You cannot hold back wages. If you didn't pay them for the work they've done, you cannot withhold it. No games. They are allowed to walk away. You owe them what you owe them. They can owe you, yes, if, they, if, uh, if, you, pre, if you prepaid them and they didn't do that work. Yes, they owe you the money back. But you cannot, you cannot do that. But here's where the hammer drops. You guys ready? Three, two, one. That is only true with an employee, but not with an independent contractor. I'll say that one more time. All of this is only true, only applies to an employee,
but not an independent contractor. Why? Because an independent contractor is never a slave. I'll say that again. An employee, we're concerned that if we don't let you with that escape hatch of leave whenever you want, then you are a slave because you have to work those hours 100% and now you're told you can't leave? Uh-oh, that sounds like slavery. But if you're an independent contractor, you know what that means? You're not a slave to begin with. You work for yourself. In which case, paradoxically, now you can't leave. You can't quit. You with me on this? Let me state, let me, let me explain. If you're an independent contractor and you agree to get the job done, let's talk about my designer. <coughs> my designer says, or a designer, forget my designer. A designer says, I'm going to build a website for you. Yeah, you pay, you pay me X amount of money and I'll build you a website. Great, great. I don't own their time. I don't own their tools. I don't own their methodology, how they do it. They do it as they do it on their, own, on their time. You know, they could do it from 2 a.m. to 6 a.m. They could do it from 10 a.m. to 2 p.m. Whatever hours they want, do it as you wish to do it. I don't own you. I just contracted you to do a job. <laughs> There's no slavery here. It doesn't, doesn't sound like slavery. It doesn't smack of slavery. There's no, there's no, there's no, there's no inclination. There's no, there's no hint of slavery here. Therefore, therefore, they're on the hook to get the job done. What if they don't want to do it? Well, then I can sue them. And I can say, now I have to hire someone else. And let's say that other hire charges more for a web. Now, let's say the price for design in general, has gone up, inflation. Now I have to pay someone at a higher rate. I can actually take, take, take the original designer to task and have them pay the difference or, or somehow extract that money from them. Why? Because they broke their end of the contract. So here's the wild thing in Jewish labor law. If you're an employee, we're very concerned that you don't end up like a slave. Therefore, we always give you an out. Hit the out button, you're done. But if you're an independent contractor, we don't give you an easy button to hit because you already have an easy button or you already have, I don't mean easy, you already are not a slave because you are working for yourself. Only an employee, just to clarify, only an employee has the ability in halacha and Jewish law to quit midterm with impunity, but not an independent contractor because he or she was never enslaved in the first place. In fact, the hirer can refuse to pay the contractor for past work if the project stalls and falls apart due to that person quitting. Let's say, getting back to the example of the website. I hired someone to do a website, right? And they, halfway through, they say, you know what? I quit. They quit. And because of that, the website falls apart. I can, I can choose, I mean, it's not so simple in all cases, but there might be a, a rationale to say that I don't have to pay them for the work that they did. Why? Because they were, they were hired to create a website. They did not create a website. If they didn't create a website, what am I paying them for? For the work? For the hours? I didn't hire them for the hours. I hired them for the job, right? So that's it. That's the way it works. If you quit in the middle of it. So you can quit, right? Sure, you can quit, but I don't have to pay you. And if it harms me, I might be able to sue you even in Jewish law. That's how Jewish law works. Whereas when it comes to an employee, we, we, we put on um, kid gloves. With an employee, we put on kid gloves because they're already dedicating their hours to the, to the, to the job. 
They're already giving themselves lev and nefesh, heart and soul, to this job. It, it, in that type of um, dedicating time, handing over their time, their time is not their own, therefore we're very sensitive to that. Whereas when it comes to an independent contractor, we're a little less sensitive, right? We're more likely to say, sure, withhold the wages, or withhold the payment for the past work. Sure, independent contractor. We have no, in other words, the Rachmanis that we have, the compassion that we have, or the, 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 the looking, the seeking, the, the welfare of, of that person is more for the employee than for the independent contractor. All right, this also explains one other distinction, a very important distinction, between employees and independent contractors with regards to when they are to be paid. Jewish law mandates that employees be paid as soon as the payment period is up. Right? So if you're being paid weekly, you got to be paid that day before the sun sets. You got to pay that person then. Um, whatever the agreement is, but when that time period, because it's all about time, when the time is up, you got to pay. You got to pay up. Whereas, um, so hourly workers by the hour, weekly, monthly, yearly, etc. Independent contractors, get paid at the end of the job. Not by time, but by the job. By, by, by getting paid at the end of the job. And if the job is unsatisfactory, yeah, he may withhold payment, unlike the, unlike, uh, the employee. So Jewish law, in summary, benefits the employee versus the contractor, not because the boss is the highest in command and therefore has responsibility. No, but because otherwise he's enslaved. He or she is enslaved, which is forbidden. So we want to make sure that whoever's working for the other person is not ever getting to that situation where they're like a slave. So therefore we give them more protection in Jewish law so that they don't end up a slave. But independent contractor doesn't begin to be a slave. You own your own hours. You own your own, you own your own work. So what kind of slavery is there? So therefore you don't get the protections in Jewish law as an employee does. So Here's a summary of three distinctions between an employee and an independent contractor in halacha. Number one, an employee must be paid on time at the end of the payment period. A contractor is paid at the end of the job. Okay, one is by time, one is by job. Next, an employee cannot be fired midterm. A contractor may be fired midterm. Number three, an employee can leave at any time, right? Even midterm with impunity. Can't be enslaved, can leave at any point, just walk off the job. And we can't go after you for you know, suing you. A contractor cannot leave mid-job. And if he does or she does, they do face financial liability. These are the distinctions. And all of this is due to the Torah's unique view of an employee as one who is engaged in a form of servitude, giving up a part of his or her freedom, and who therefore enjoys the law's protection. In other words, since we're concerned about an employee becoming a slave, Therefore, we add in those protections. You want to call it, um, you know, the, uh, 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 the exodus um, trigger? Sure, it triggers some trauma. It triggers some Jewish trauma, right? That's the way it is. You have, you have Jewish trauma of slavery. We don't want to ever be back in a situation where people are, 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 are enslaved to other people. So therefore, we say, if you're working for someone, yeah, you have hours, strict hours they have to work, okay, but you can walk away at any time. Because otherwise, uh-oh. If you don't have hours anyway, you're doing your own work, then you can't walk away because you've got to do the job. So that's what it is. Um, okay. Let's see. What about a non-Jewish employee or independent contractor? It's a good question. It's a good question if, if someone who's not Jewish um, is, gets the benefit of halach of Jewish law. But I understand the question. If it's a Jewish boss... And, and he or she has someone who's not Jewish working for them, are they bound, 
I mean, the question is ethically, legally. I don't know. It's a good question. I'm not sure. We have to look up the original. But this is, in general, this is the idea. And I think it's important to recognize that the, 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 where the issue revolves around is the question of, does this look like slavery or not? If it looks like slavery, we have to ease up now on the restrictions. If it doesn't look like slavery, then we hold them accountable. Right? So if you're an independent contractor, you got to get the job done. We'll hold you. You want to walk away? Sure. But now there's liability. Now you're going to get sued. You may, not get pa- you may not get past wages if you walk away. An employee, no one's going to have any complaints. You want to walk away? I get it. I get it. You gave away your time and now you want it back? I get it. I get it. You, you're, you're allowed to reclaim your time. And we have to pay you for all the time that you sold all, the, all, all of your soul that you sold to someone else, you get paid for that, even if you walked away in the middle. That's, that's the psychology and the application of Jewish labor law. And now, and I know we're right at the time, we're going to do a very quick case study. One more case study, and then we're going to close it out. Take a look at this. This is a real case that came before rabbis in Israel. Rabbi Grossman, Netzach Yisrael. Here we go. A school bus driver. Listen to this. Real story. A school bus driver who was employed for many years at a certain day school, a Jewish day school, was recently laid off from his job. During his appointment, he followed a strict daily schedule of bringing the children to school in the morning as well as taking them back home in the afternoon. He was paid a set amount per student. He is now demanding severance pay from the school. I remember I told you that severance is a Jewish thing. Severance from the school. Is he entitled to a severance payment? He claims severance. The school does not want to pay him severance. Now, why is the school saying no? The school is saying no because he wasn't paid a set salary. He was paid based on the number of kids, right? He was paid a set amount per student as opposed to per hour. So so it's complicated because he's working per hour, but he's not getting paid per hour. He's getting paid like per job almost. So it's a little bit of like a a mixed relationship. It's not like he's working. He's It's not like he's on the clock and making money per hour. And it's not like he's on the job and making money on the job. He's on the hour, but making money for the job. He's kind of got it, he's kind of got it mixed a little bit. Um, or it would be like the same in, in my case of a designer where let's say the designer does not have set hours, but gets paid by the hour. You with me on that? Imagine the designer is, I hire a designer to create a website. And then I'm being billed by the hour. Are you with me on that? So I didn't, I didn't, I didn't mandate the hours, but I'm paying the hours. The, con- the converse is I demanded hours because you had to show up, take the kids to, 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 in the bus on time. So I'm demanding hours, but I'm not paying you by the hour. So then is it, is it slavery or not? In other words, does, is it employment? Employment, i.e. touching slavery, or is it, I, I don't mean that literally. I mean, but is it like, you know, that type of servitude, or is it not? Which, this, if, it's, if it is that employment that servitude type thing, then, or we're afraid it's going to, then there is severance. So that's the question. So ultimately, ultimately, um, it goes by the, the hours. The main criteria is the hours, as we see in the, in the, in the conclusion of this, uh, of this idea. Text number eight. Take a look. This is from another source. Very clear on the matter. If one hired a tutor, using another example, for two hours a day. No, no, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I don't think I want to. Um, no, that's not the right. That's not the right one. Um, okay, that's 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 not the exact. That's another example. It's not the text I wanted. Maybe it's not a text. 
The point is it goes, the primary criteria is the hourly obligation. If you are obligated to show up at a certain hour to do certain work, even if your pay structure is not per hour, even if it's some other you know, algorithm, if you have to be there at a certain time, then you are most likely, in Jewish law, an employee, and you get severance. The, ru- the, the, the ruling came down in the case of the bus driver who got laid off, that yes, he gets severance, even though, he didn't, even though the school was saying, we didn't pay him per hour, but you, you, you mandated that he show up at a certain hour, right? That means he, he had to, huh? You controlled him. You control, oh, perfect. You controlled him, you gotta, you gotta hook him up with severance. That's the guiding principle. If you control someone, you gotta pay them severance, you have to pay them for their work, you can't uh, just fire them willy-nilly, and you also you have to pay uh, severance, yeah, and they can also walk away whenever they want. You can't, I mean, not, if they walk away, they don't also get severance. You can't have it both ways. If you want to walk away, you don't get severance. But if you're terminated, then that's when the severance kicks in. So Robert Grossman therefore rules that, yes, the bus driver is entitled to receive severance from the school. All right, so that's, that's the end of the of the technicalities of the lesson. I'm gonna summarize and then share with you one mystical insight because we always love blending the legal and the mystical. So again, in summary, we've seen what US law has to say about employment and the spirit of employment. And we've seen what Torah, what Judaism has to say about employment and labor law. Um, In US law, there are many factors many sometimes competing factors that go into the consideration whether one is indeed an employee or independent contractor. In Jewish law, um, it seems like the primary criteria is, well, the, the, the larger picture is how much subjugation do, do they have to the job or how much um, of a hold, of a grip, does the employer have on the employee? And one major factor, one major testing ground of that question is whether or not they have their own time, whether they own their time or you own their time. If you own their time, yeah, that's an employer. That's an employer-employee relationship. If they own their time, most likely independent contract. Look, there might be other factors. Nothing is super clear-cut. Nothing is always, you know, like absolutely no shadow of a doubt. There's always, you know, room for a conversation. But most likely that's the way, that's the way it flows. Um, you know, we, all of us, in addition to whatever else we do, we also have another obligation. God's obligation. Every one of us was put here on earth to make this world a home for God, to make this world a better place, to make this world, to turn this world, to, un- to unleash its potential to be a divine garden, a beautiful orchard of divine energy. And so the question is, if we are God's employees, right, then we should get paid on the hour. Right? We, should, we, should get, we should get our reward. No. So why is it that we don't, we don't always feel like we're getting the rewards? Or we don't feel like we're getting hooked up, so to speak. We feel like, you know, it doesn't. And sometimes a person can, can live a good life. Let me explain that. A person can lead a righteous, a virtuous life and, 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 and have a lot of difficulty. A lot of di- personal difficulty in their lives. And the person might say, it's not fair. God, I worked for you in your own Torah. It says you got to pay your workers on time. No, where's my reward? So God says like this. Yes, you are my worker, but you also are an independent contractor. 
And as an independent contractor, you get paid at the end of the job. So when, when our 120 years are up, when our mission in life is complete, that's when we get the reward in the afterlife. You with me on this? That's when we get the reward in the afterlife. When? Our job is completed. We're not being paid by the hour. Listen, along the way, we also get, we also get perks. We also get the perks, right? We get the perks, there are perks. But somebody says, I've done so much good and it's still a hard life. Okay, hold on, it's not over yet. The website is not finished, right? The job is not finished after, after 120 years. That's when the main reward is. So this is all from a talk of the Rebbe. The Rebbe says, but one second, one second. But what about the, but, but, but even the afterlife is not the ultimate reward. Mashiach, the Messianic is the ultimate reward. So why does a soul have to wait? Imagine a, the soul of Moses has been waiting thousands of 3,000 years for Mashiach, for the ultimate perfection. Three, how is that fair to him? He's not getting paid fully because he doesn't have the soul back and body, you know, the, the, the resurrection of the dead. He's not experiencing that. How's it? So we say like this. Not only are you an independent contractor, but you're on a team. And the job is not done until the whole team gets the job done. That's what Mashiach is. So you don't get the full reward, right? You don't get the full reward until the whole mission is complete. And that's what Mashiach is. So there's different levels of employment for God. There's the hourly and the weekly and the monthly and the annually, and we do get paid a little bit. But then there's also the, that's as an employee, but then there's the independent contractor element, which only gets paid when the job is done. And th that's when we pass away. And the afterlife, we get heaven, reward of heaven, etc. And then there's the fact that we're not only independent contractors, but we're contractors on a team. We're a team of contractors. And the ultimate, ultimate reward is when all of us get the job done, Mashiach is here, and the souls are reunited with their loved ones, with the coming of Mashiach, may be speedily in our days, and let us say, Amen. And like, so what's the point? The moral of the story is, every physical law has a spiritual analog. As long as we look hard enough, we can find it. All right, hope you enjoyed tonight's discussion. Next week, listen to this. This is maybe my favorite class. I mean, every week is my favorite. But next week, next week is amazing. It's called, the class is called the do-gooder. Listen to this. What happens if somebody does something for you that benefits you, right? Somebody does work for you that clearly benefits you, but you didn't ask them to do it. Should, do you have to pay them to do the work? Somebody mows your lawn. You didn't ask them to, but they did a work. And now they're asking for money. Uh-oh, now what? Somebody squeegees your car at the red light in Times Square. Now what? Aha. Uh -huh. All right, well, we'll leave the squeegee question, the New York, the Manhattan question aside, because that's a complicated question. But we we're going to have real cases of individuals who did something, did a service for someone else that was uncontracted, and now the question is, can they collect payment for uncontracted work? Come back next week as you be the judge on those cases. All right, um, quick announcement that I feel is relevant that I've never, I haven't yet mentioned in any of the classes so far. Um, and that is that next week, Tuesday, a week from today, is the 120th birthday of 
the Rebbe. The Rebbe was born in 1902 on the 11th day of Nisan. And 120 years since the Rebbe's birth is one week from, from today. And so as I was talking about, you know, a person's mission being coming after 120 years, because that's the typical, you know, lifespan. We say, may you live to 120. So I remember, you know, obviously the upcoming birthday of the Rebbe. It's a good time of year, this time of year, to reflect on, to reflect on the, um, you know, the, uh, the ideals that the Rebbe stood for, education and goodness and kindness and acts of kindness and making the world a better place and Mashiach. These are, this is what, and loving each other, you know, just being nice to each other. These were all values of the Rebbe. I also need to mention that National Education Day in the United States, every single year, is on the Rebbe's Hebrew birthday. Every, this is 100% true. You can look it up. National Education Day USA. Sorry, Education Day USA is always designated on the Hebrew birthday of the Rebbe. This is something that was a bipartisan thing that, that started off in the, I think, the 1980s, early 80s. It's been through every, in every president, through every presidency, every Congress, no matter which, which um, political party was in power, it's been every single year an act declared or the day is declared Nash, uh, Education Day USA. So the Rebbe was all about education, all about love and kindness and making this world a better place. In Georgia last week, there was a, doc a declaration signed by the governor to declare, um, do I have a copy of it? I feel like I got a picture of it. Um, I know I'm right in the middle of a, of a sentence. But let's see if I can find it. Give me a second here. Yes. By the governor of the state of Georgia, a proclamation of the Rebbe's birthday as Education and Sharing Day. Isn't that nice? Education and Sharing Day. So it's not only education, but sharing. Sharing means, you know, ah, there's a bunch of whereases. You ever see these, the whereas this, whereas that decorations? Whereas a quality education is one of the most significant pillars of. Chabad instigate that? Did, was it oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Oh, oh, yeah, for sure. Yeah, Chabad drove that initiative. <laughs> Absolutely. But, but it stands up because the Rebbe was literally all about education and all about sharing. That's, that's actually the, the perfect way to phrase it. Education and sharing. Education. Not just Jewish education, education, straight up education. The Rebbe was a leading call for improving public education and, and strategies in public education. Again, not only Jewish education, but just universal education, public education. The Rebbe was all about sharing and kindness and chesed, ultimately to build and create a better world. So this is something to think about this week. Perhaps, if you'd like, think about what we each can do in our own lives to enhance education, to enhance sharing, to make the world a better place. All right, thank you for joining me tonight. Don't forget, treat your employees nicely, treat yourselves nicely, and please God, let us find that reward with the coming of Mashiach. Maybe be in our days. Let us say amen. Amen. Questions, comments before we close out, or we're good? We're good? Thank you. Thank you. Pleasure. Thank you for yes, all of the input and all the feedback. Shkoyach to everybody. We'll see y'all. Have a good night. Laila Tov. I just, I just wanted, can oh, I say one thing? Yeah, for sure. Yeah, Mindy. 
Um, and my mom will will recognize this, but my I have a my my brother is observant in Israel, and he would always say when he like pays the taxi driver or uh, construction workers doing work and renovations on his home, he would as he's paying the guy, he would say, "I'm doing the mitzvah of paying my hired worker on time." On time. I was thinking of the tip. giving him the tip, he said, I'm doing the mitzvah of paying my hired worker on time. Right. <laughs> he like verbalizes it, yeah. it every single time. <laughs> <laughs> Doesn't he, Mom? Yes. Doesn't he? I was yeah. thinking that, but I didn't say anything. It's no, a, I, but I thought of that, too. But you know what? It's funny in, it in your head, but he says it out loud. Right. He's yeah. paying the guy. And, and you know what? Maybe, maybe on on some level, it elevates it. It's not just a good thing, but it's also a divine thing. It's a divine quality. It's, uh, it's, it's, it's God's sense of, of justice and righteousness to pay, to pay the He's worker on time. He's acknowledging that it's a mitzvah to right. do that. Right. But he yeah. always verbalizes that. Very cool. <laughs> yeah, well, it's Very funny nice. when he's paying a cab driver. Yeah. I mean, only in Israel. He doesn't right, Israel. right. Well, nowadays you probably couldn't get away with not paying on time. I'm just saying. It's like it's I would not stiff a cab driver. I'm just saying it's probably not a good idea. Especially in New York City. All right. Or Israel for that matter. Um Lila to, yeah, say hello to Nowadays everyone has apps anyway. If you're doing Uber or whatever, you have the payment loaded up anyway. There's no way out of it. So not like we're looking for it, but just but yeah, it it it, uh, it it's it raises yeah. the consciousness. I think it's a beautiful thing. All right, Lila Tov, thanks for sharing that. We'll see you guys Lila soon. Tov. Take care, everybody.